Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. Hunter Biden now facing nine criminal tax charges in a new indictment. Prosecutors allege it involved a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes while spending money on women and drugs instead. An update on the border crisis. Tons of trash threatening wildlife, a crossing shut down due to a surge and an impasse in Congress. An immigration analyst tells us what needs to be done to straighten this out. A financially struggling academic with a list of targets. Police have new information about the Vegas campus shooting suspect. Three university presidents are facing backlash after a heated discussion in Congress over anti-Semitism. Now the universities face repercussions. The Hanukkah season has begun. One mother in Israel hopes a miracle happens for her son, who is still a hostage. Hear her story. Explosions near the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Local sources confirm several rockets hit multiple buildings in the area. We have more updates on the situation. And we take a look at some festive celebrations and Christmas markets from Europe, which are attracting visitors from around the world. Don't miss it. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Friday, of course. It's December 8th. Yeah, and Evelyn, the border is a mess. Oh. And I mean that literally. Tons of trash in a single cleanup. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you have videos showing human sewage. Really, it's it's getting right. serious. And of course, uh, Lukeville, well, we, we're going to talk about this later uh, some in more depth. But, you know, in Lukeville, they had to shut, uh, shut down this crossing. And it's going to affect the local community because it's not just because they have to actually cross the border too to conduct their business. So let's hear about that a little bit later and how that affects people there. But today's top news is that federal prosecutors have filed new criminal charges against President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. It's a second criminal case special counsel David Weiss has brought against the younger Biden in his long-running DOJ investigation. Weiss announced the indictment last night accusing Hunter Biden of failing to pay over a million dollars in taxes while spending millions on items of personal nature instead. The indictment alleges that this took place during a four-year scheme to support what it called a lavish lifestyle. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new accusations. A California grand jury returned a nine-count indictment against Hunter Biden Thursday, charging him with three felony tax offenses and six misdemeanor tax offenses. Special counsel David Weiss alleging the first son spent millions on a lavish lifestyle and drugs instead of fulfilling his tax obligations. Weiss says the charges include three counts of failure to pay taxes for the years 2016, 2017, and 2019, and three counts of failure to file tax returns for the years 2017 and 2018. The special counsel's team accuses Hunter Biden of engaging in a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes amounting to at least $1.4 million. Prosecutors allege that Hunter Biden included false business deductions when filing for 2018 after eventually paying for that year and claim it was done in order to evade assessment and reduce the substantial tax liabilities he faced. Also in the 56-page indictment are accusations of subverting the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions of dollars outside of its normal withholding process. It accuses the president's son of spending his money during that time on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, exotic cars, and clothing among other items of a personal nature, quote, in short, everything but his taxes. It states he spent over $1.8 million in 2018 alone, listing roughly 770000 in cash withdrawals that year, along with over $380,000 payments to women, and close to 150000 on clothing and accessories. The indictment also lists spending for 2016, 2017, and 2019. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, stated Thursday, based on the facts in the law, charges wouldn't have been brought if his client had any other last name. Lowell accuses Weiss of reneging on a prior plea deal under GOP pressure and then piling on nine new charges after a five-year-long investigation. If convicted on all counts, Hunter Biden could face a maximum penalty of 17 years in prison. The Justice Department says its investigation is ongoing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We reached out to the White House, DOJ, and Hunter Biden's attorney for a comment. We'll let you know, of course, when we hear back. 
GOP lawmakers move one step closer toward impeaching President Biden. The inquiry is expected to soon be authorized by the full House of Representatives. House Republicans filed the resolution yesterday and the vote will take place next week. The resolution also allows the House Judiciary Committee to issue articles of impeachment. President Biden, his son Hunter, other family members and business associates are being accused of receiving payments from foreign entities like Russia and the Chinese Communist regime. The probe so far traces payments through various shell companies. And former President Trump was back in court yesterday for the New York civil fraud trial. He did not testify, but listened to a witness who testified for him. He reviewed fully the documents that this horrendous attorney general put forth, and he found absolutely no fraud, accounting fraud of any kind. This is a highly respected man. I don't know him, but he's a expert witness, and he found no fraud whatsoever. He found no accounting fraud whatsoever. And like everyone else, he said, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? This is a political witch hunt. Eli Bartov is an accounting professor at New York University. He testified yesterday as the Trump team's second to last witness. His testimony aimed to boost Trump's argument that his family business didn't manipulate the value of its holdings. Before entering the courtroom, Trump again criticized New York Attorney General Letitia James and Judge Arthur Ngoron as biased against him. The former president added that his company did nothing wrong and the case had no victims. Trump has appeared as a witness once already. He's expected to testify as a final witness on Monday. On to foreign affairs, the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad was attacked with two salvos of rockets this morning, but there were no casualties. An embassy spokesperson added that the attack is believed to have been carried out by Iran-aligned militants, militias in Iraq. No group immediately claimed responsibility. An umbrella group of Iran-aligned Muslim militias began attacking U.S. forces on military bases in Iraq and Syria in mid-October. However, this was the first reported rocket attack against the embassy. The armed groups operate under the banner of the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Iraq's prime minister released a statement describing the group as unruly and lawless. He said the group does not represent the will of the Iraqi people. And now some updates from the Israel-Hamas war. An Israeli man believed to be a hostage in Gaza was killed on October 7th. 68-year-old Dror Kaplun was a resident of Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the hardest hit communities that day. The kibbutz announced his death yesterday. It said his wife, Marcel, was also killed. And a Hamas body cam video was released by Israel's military yesterday showing what it says are Hamas terrorists fortifying themselves in a civilian building. Another video shows a person holding a rocket launcher crawling from a building and people hiding in buildings. Other footage taken yesterday shows around 100 men detained in northern Gaza, guarded by Israeli troops. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari says many have been arrested during ground operations for questioning around ties to Hamas. The IDF says it has detained and interrogated hundreds of suspected terrorists in Gaza so far during the war and says it will continue to dismantle each Hamas stronghold. Egypt's foreign minister said yesterday Palestinians will not be allowed to temporarily relocate to Egypt. The minister stated displacement would violate international humanitarian law. It's now been two months since the war began between Israel and Hamas terrorists. Thousands have been killed and many more have been displaced. And it now appears that Hamas is launching attacks alongside those displaced people. Entity's Jason Perry reports. Israel Defense Forces on Thursday released a video showing Hamas terrorists operating within a residential neighborhood in the Gaza Strip, and one of the terrorists fired an anti-tank missile. The IDF then directed a precision aerial strike at the terrorists. Meanwhile, Hamas released its own video just the day before, showing terrorists making their way through destroyed buildings before focusing on what appear to be Israeli tanks in several locations. 
The video highlights the tanks in red before the terrorists fired on them. Hamas, which is known for using civilians as human shields in residential areas and hospitals, has now taken things a step further, as said by the Israeli government spokesperson. Hamas has shifted to launching attacks on the Israeli people from within the designated humanitarian zone. Hamas terrorists launched 12 missiles towards the Israeli city of Beersheba from inside the Al-Mawasi humanitarian zone, launching those missiles from near the tents of evacuated Gazan civilians and from right next to United Nations facilities, as you can see in the aerial images that the army has supplied. The IDF then struck the launch site. But looking beyond the safe zones and battle zones, the Gazan people were already relying heavily on humanitarian aid to survive even before the war, according to the United Nations. Yes, there is aid that comes in, but it isn't enough at all. It isn't enough for the families. On Wednesday, the UN said that although humanitarian aid trucks have been entering Gaza from Egypt, the UN staff has had difficulty distributing the aid since the ceasefire ended last week. Israel, on the other hand, said this. Today, we can expect un, uh, up to 250 trucks every day in Nitsana. And as I said, the problem is not Nitsana. The problem is the capability of the UN agencies to collect all the international assistance that, after we are checking it, goes to Rafah. This is the main problem. Meanwhile, in Tel Aviv, high school students decorated menorahs on the first eve of Hanukkah for the 138 hostages still held captive by Hamas. It feels not very good this year because uh, this year there are a lot of anti-Semitism and people want to kill us, so we need to fight by, fight back. It's now been two months since Hamas terrorists crossed into Israeli territory and killed over 1,200 innocent people. That terrorist act started the war between Israel and Hamas. Jason Perry, NTD News. And this just in, Russian President Vladimir Putin says he will seek re-election in March, according to state media, a move that could see him retain power until 2030. And coming next, police say the Las Vegas campus attack suspect was found with nine loaded gun magazines and a list of targets. Hear what police have to say about the accused killer. Ivy League universities are feeling tangible backlash after president's testimony this week on campus anti-Semitism. Hanukkah season is here, but the popular Jewish celebration has a deeper meaning for an Israeli mother of a hostage. Hear her story after the break. Welcome back. New details in the Las Vegas campus gunman ca case. Police say he was a financially struggling academic who was refused employment by several Nevada colleges. The suspect was shot dead by police after allegedly killing three professors and wounding a fourth. Police discuss the suspect here who was found with nine loaded magazines. Officers from both UNLV and LVMPD arrived and heard shooting coming from inside the beam hall and went in immediately, and I stress without hesitation, to neutralize the threat. The suspect exited the building at around 11.55 and was confronted by UNLV, plainclothes police officers, and a gunfight ensued. The suspect was struck multiple times and collapsed to the ground. Police say 67-year-old Anthony Polito had a criminal record for a computer crime. UNLV students were not the main target of the attack, according to law enforcement, but the exact motive is unclear. Investigators say the suspect mailed over 20 letters to university employees across the country before the shooting and had a list of people he was seeking on the UNLV campus and at East Carolina University where he once taught. Authorities managed to intercept the letters before they were delivered and their contents are still being looked at. Police say they also found a document similar to a will at the suspect's residence, but haven't released its contents. 
and the University of Pennsylvania's Board of Trustees held an emergency meeting yesterday. The school's president faces criticism over remarks she made at a House hearing earlier this week on Capitol Hill. During the meeting, Penn's president struggled to answer questions of whether calling for genocide of Jews violates the school code of conduct. She wasn't the only university president under fire. Presidents of three of the country's top schools, MIT, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania, sharply questioned this week on Capitol Hill over anti-Semitic rhetoric on their campuses, now facing massive backlash for not taking a hardline stance against calls for genocide. I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So far, no protesters held accountable. Have any students been expelled or disciplined for bullying, harassment, or uh, these actions that you're listing? I can assure you we have robust student disciplinary processes. No, 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 no. I'm not, I, didn't ask about your, I did them. not ask about your process. I asked if any students had been disciplined or removed from Harvard as a result of the bullying and the harassment that's taken place based on their anti-Semitic views. After the hearing, University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill attempted to clarify her remarks, issuing a video statement. When I was asked if a call for the genocide of Jewish people on our campus would violate our policies. In that moment, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the U.S. Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. I was not focused on, but I should have been. Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, issued a written statement after the House committee hearing in part saying, Calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard, and those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. Pennsylvania's Democratic governor said UPenn's McGill failed at the most basic level. It shouldn't be hard, and there should be no nuance to that. She needed to give a one-word answer. And she failed to meet that test. The White House making clear on calls for genocide, there is no room for nuance. Uh, calls for genocide are unacceptable. Uh, it's vile and it, it's counter to everything this country stands for. I can't believe I even have to say that. I can't believe I even have to say that. Some Jewish students and their supporters demanding action. Jewish students do not believe that the MIT administration has done an adequate job to make students feel safe on campus. Do something. Protect Jewish people. Protect your students. Ivy League University presidents facing backlash over rising campus anti-Semitism are now facing some repercussions. A prominent rabbi and anti-Semitism advisor at Harvard, David Wolpe, resigned yesterday, citing painfully inadequate testimony from Harvard President Claudine Gay. He also says the system at Harvard and its ideology grip far too many students and faculty. Wolpe says the ideology works only along axes of oppression. He argues that portraying Jews as oppressors and inherently evil is wrong and makes the entire ideology evil. Major UPenn donor Ross Stevens says he's withdrawing a $100 million donation. His attorneys say it's because UPenn violated the firm's limited partnership agreement. Stevens' lawyers say the university failed to meet its anti-discrimination and harassment rules. He mentioned UPenn President Liz McGill's recent testimony when she said calls for genocide violate policy based on the context and whether they were directed, pervasive and severe. The board of UPenn Wharton's business school is now calling for McGill's resignation. Also, the Hanukkah season is here. The traditional Jewish holiday is celebrated worldwide. The world's largest menorah was lit in New York City yesterday. However, this year's celebration brings with it new challenges and new hopes. The Hanukkah holiday started last night. The eight nights of celebration, prayer and merriment make it one of the most popular Jewish holidays. In New York, the first night of the holiday started with lighting a candle on the world's largest menorah. This visitor is hoping the Hanukkah season will bring out the best in people across the world. 
this year it means a little bit more. I mean, everyone needs to stand together with everything going on. And, um, you know, just feel like the more people that come out, the more people that band together, we hopefully other people will see what's really going on and that, you know, the Jewish community is not the evil community that they want to brand it as and that, you know, it's all about peace and love. In Israel, the hostage situation is casting a long shadow on the Festival of Lights. People in this Tel Aviv celebration are sad, but remain hopeful the hostages will come home safely. Today it's a, it's a Hanukkah holiday here in Israel, and we are really pray very, very hard that this holiday will bring, our, will bring us the miracle that we are so waiting for, to bring him home to his family, that we can hug him and kiss him, and just to know that he is okay. Edito Hell and her family are keeping the holiday celebration, cooking the traditional foods, using the old recipes, but the holiday is somber for her. Her 22-year-old son, Ulan, has been held hostage since being taken at the Supernova Festival on October 7th. She's struggling to cope. But the fact is, is that it's very quiet at home. It's not as festive and it's not as happy as it should be. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard, but uh, he's in our heart all the time. Even when I'm talking to you now, I'm thinking that he's here in somehow, in some way. She takes comfort in thinking about the meaning of the Hanukkah celebration, and she believes the magic of the holiday will see the safe release of her son. There's, um, in Hanukkah, there were eight lights, or uh, eight days of Hanukkah. And he was, was his SMS was at eight o'clock, and oh eight, eight oh eight, if I show you this, is really meaning. So I think it will be a miracle. I don't know why. I think so. Maybe at the eighth day of Hanukkah, maybe. This year, the Hanukkah celebration worldwide has taken on a deeper meaning than other years. For Jewish people across the world, there is more concern and more sadness. But there is also more hope, unity, and a stronger belief that miracles will happen. Yeah, I'm sure many families in Israel don't really feel like celebrating at this moment, but I hope the holidays will bring some, some moments of happiness and peace. Yeah, holidays are a time for families to come together and of course the families who have members in captivity obviously are probably praying really strongly for them to return home. Right. On that note, let's head to a quick break. Republicans pushing for border policy negotiations. They insist on change in order to pay for Ukraine aid. That's running dry. What both sides of the aisle are saying about where common ground lies. Melina Wisecup on Capitol Hill. Tons of trash left behind as a surge of migrants hits Arizona, threatening wildlife and destroying a national monument, according to a former official. We sit down with a border security analyst to find out what can be done to solve this. Good morning. Thanks for staying with us. As the border crisis persists, Republicans insist that addressing the rising threat to the homeland is just as important as sending aid to Ukraine, if not more so. They're lighting a fire under border security negotiations. President Biden expressed openness to compromise, but how far is he willing to go? NTD's Melina Wisecup reports from Capitol Hill. Well, it looks like uh, we've finally gotten... Uh... President Biden's attention. Republicans making their point on Wednesday, tanking a supplemental package with aid to Israel and Ukraine, insisting that Democrats compromise on border security in order to get funding for Ukraine that's now running dry. This is something that they're going to pretend like they're voting for Ukraine when they're voting for the border. President Biden, like Senate leader Chuck Schumer, is pinning blame on Republicans for not yet finding a common ground solution, while the president still leaves the door open to compromising further. From judges to more border security. This is the leverage we need to get something serious done to protect our southwest border. 
Bipartisan negotiations in the Senate appear to be struggling to survive, with Senate leader Schumer saying Republicans are simply asking for too much without being willing to compromise on changes to immigration policy. But we do know of at least one area of common ground, that is asylum reform. Border security is a tough issue, and we need to determine in a, in a uh, rapid fashion uh, whether or not uh, those who seek asylum under our law are in fact eligible for asylum. Negotiators could try to settle for a smaller package with one or two areas of common ground solutions, considering the urgency of funding Israel and Ukraine's defense. But as for now, it looks like Republicans are still trying to push the limits to see what kind of border policy changes they can get with the Democrats sitting in the White House. And in the end, the question remains, how much will Democrats be willing to accept here? And will Republicans accept anything less than a return to a Trump-era policy known as Remain in Mexico? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And joining us live now is Laura Rees. She's the director of the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation to talk about the border crisis. We're going to discuss an eye-opening amount of apprehensions at the border, a recent surge of migrants near Lukeville, Arizona, and the impasse in Congress over border security. Laura, thank you so much for joining us now. All Senate Republicans voted to block Biden's over $100 billion supplemental aid package, and they're demanding more security at the border. Can you elaborate on this? Yes, yeah, so the White House decided to combine money for Ukraine, for Israel, and for border security. Uh, but really, all the Biden administration wants is more money to continue processing more illegal aliens into the U.S. And so one more dollar given to this administration is just going to accelerate what we've been seeing the past three years, and that is millions of illegal aliens coming into this country. And Americans are fed up. New Yorkers are fed up. And uh, finally, members of Congress are saying, look, we, we need real policy changes to actually secure the border. So I think um, you just touched on it a little bit, but let's delve a little bit deeper because that emergency spending includes around $20 billion for border security. So how do you expect it to go to good use? Also with analysts saying that border agents already are not on the job enforcing, um, but are stuck in doing administrative work. So the money would go to more processing. So uh, paying DHS officials, including our border officials, and our interior enforcement agents to transport more illegal aliens into and throughout the U.S. Uh, the money would go to NGOs, non-governmental organizations that this administration relies so heavily on to process, transport, shelter, feed, and provide social services to the millions of illegal aliens. Um, and so th that's what this administration wants, is just more money because they keep running out of money to, to pay the NGOs. And when the, the flow of people doesn't stop, they just keep asking for more money. Mm -hmm. And uh, the House and Congress passed a very important bill, uh, the Secure the Border Act back in May, that would actually stop the flow of illegal immigration. Um, and so it's time for the Senate to take up that bill and pass it as well. Yeah, and we're seeing mass migration in North America right now. Let's look at the big picture here. These illegal crossings are overwhelming the border reportedly, and DHS officials are saying that they apprehended over 8,000 on Monday alone. How much of a role is the Biden administration's policies playing here in the sheer volume of people attempting to enter this country illegally? Well, it's, it's direct impact. People around the world have heard that our border is open, and you will see when when uh, aliens are interviewed down on the border, they will thank Joe Biden, uh, or they will ask him, "Yes, please let me in." Um, so, uh, I went down to the Roosevelt Hotel here in, in Times Square yesterday. Uh, that's become a shelter for a lot of illegal aliens. And there were uh, migrants from Mauritania, Senegal, China, all over the world. Um, they've, they've heard the message loud and clear, and, and we're seeing historic numbers. I think we had three days in a row of 10,000 encountered by Customs and Border Protection, and then two days ago, a new high of 12,000 in one day. Wow, Senegal, China. So uh, let's talk about Lukeville here for a moment in Arizona. So the border crossing was just closed. Tell me more about what you know, what's going on there, and the strain, of course, that would put on the community. Yeah, so the, the cartels are very smart, and they shift their tactics according to um, the intel that they receive, uh, where there are border agents, where there aren't. 
And right now that seems to be uh, the opening that they are exploiting. And um, so Arizona is, is being overrun. You know, Texas is often uh, experiencing this as well. Um, and it has an impact on the community there, uh, whether it's environmental, um, the social services, hospital care, et cetera. And um, they're, they're suffering. Mm -hmm. But uh, the migrants, they, they get to choose where they want to go. So they'll, many come to New York City, they'll go to Chicago, they'll go to other big cities where they have family or know a friend or know that they can get a job. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah, and the tourism industry is taking a big hit from that border crossing closure as well. And the U.S. has a responsibility based on its own laws and international laws to admit asylum seekers to help people defend against being persecuted. But how many of these migrants fleeing persecution and how many of them are economic migrants? Most of them are economic migrants, and we see that in the low number of ultimate grants of asylum in the immigration courts. It's about 12%. Uh, so the vast, vast majority of people are not eligible for asylum, but they know that by applying for asylum in a few months, they will get a work authorization card, and that's what they're really after, plus time. When we have millions of cases pending in backlogs in the immigration court, they know that their case won't be heard for years, and that buys them time to stay here and to work more, to send money home, to bring family here, to put roots down. So if they ever are ultimately given an order of removal, they will argue, well, you, you can't deport me. I have too many ties here. I have children here. I've worked mm -hmm. here, et cetera. Wow. And Laura, you mentioned the Roosevelt Hotel. I actually visited that recently and I spoke with an analyst there on immigration. And he was saying that the pro-immigration group would not want these immigrants to be viewed as people who are living off welfare. Of course, they're in the hotel and they're having their food and shelter provided. And now down at the border, we're seeing retired ICE field officers saying that they're destroying the Oregon Pipe National Monument with all this trash. There's the mylar in these protective sleeping bags that they wear that are breaking down and hurting the wildlife. How is it possible for the actual optics of this to do anything for the pro-immigrant community? Well, the left, the White House, uh, they don't want uh, visuals of, of much of this. It's bad optics for them. And that is typically when the White House will actually respond, is if, if bad optics appear. And obviously the environment is a big issue for the left, and so they're conflicted on this. They want open borders, they want more uh, migration, but yes, the result is environmental damage. When that many people are crossing in, in limited areas, they'll leave behind backpacks, clothing, documents, um, it, human waste. It, it takes a real toll. Uh, but you know they'd rather have a media blackout on that because mm -hmm. they don't want to discuss that aspect of the issue. Well, I think thank you so much for coming today. Some really good insights, Laura Reese from the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. President Biden wants to seize drug patents for drugs he thinks are too expensive. What are the possible consequences for patients? Find out soon. Good morning and thanks for staying with us. A historic strike hitting a legacy media outlet. Hundreds of staffers at the Washington Post launched a 24-hour walkout from the newsroom yesterday. This as pressure mounts over a stalled agreement between the company and union members. And today's Sam Wong brings us more. Right behind me here, we're witnessing one of the biggest labor strikes in the city. And several hundred staffers from the Washington Post decided to walk off their job and join the picket line. And just bear in mind that the newsroom has lost roughly $100 million this year. And to fill that gap, the company's leadership decided to lay out 240 jobs. And I spoke to some of the protesters here, and they told me that they have been negotiating with the company in good faith, but the management has refused to take the bargain. Watch. So if you want a, a real newsroom that is really concerned about this community and hear everyone's voices and deliver stories that are important to you, we deserve fair pay. They're paid less than less than the cost of living in D.C. and we think that's, that's unacceptable. The unfair labor practice uh, has to do with sometimes dragging out, walking away from the negotiating table without sufficiently good reason. We have demonstrated that our labor brings value to readers, to audiences, and we want that to be rewarded. 
The one-day strike follows 18 months of stalled contract negotiations, in which the union is demanding pay equity, salary hikes, and better remote work policies. Employees and union leaders have asked readers to not engage with any post content throughout the day. Back in October, the Post announced voluntary buyouts, hoping to trim a quarter of its staffs in D.C. The company also said that layoffs would be on the table if enough people didn't take the incentive. This isn't the first walkout at a legacy media outlet this year. Tech workers at the New York Times staged a half-day strike back in October, saying that the company was forcing them to work in the office. Like many other legacy outlets, The Post has been grappling with a slowdown in advertising and subscriptions since hitting its peak during the Trump administration. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. The Biden administration wants to seize the patents on certain drugs to lower drug prices while declaring that health care should be a right, not a privilege. What are the big picture long term consequences? Entity's Emma Shi investigates. The Biden administration wants to seize the patents on certain drugs. This action would promote the federal government's ability to license a patent, such as those used to create life-saving drugs, to a competitor with the goal of increasing competition and bring costs down for families. Drug makers spend many years and billions of dollars to create a new drug. Once they finally succeed, the patent gives them the exclusive right to sell it, so they can hopefully make a profit after all the work. The Biden administration says that if some of these drugs are too expensive, it will seize the patents and give them to other companies. Multiple companies selling the same drug means there will be price competition. This will lower prices for patients who buy those drugs. This is a disaster. It's wrongheaded. It is just, it's a populist policy that is going to be, the consequences are going to be much worse than what they envision. Economist Wayne Weingarten says this will harm a company's ability to profit after all its hard work. So companies may no longer want to create any new drugs, preventing patients from receiving future medicines. Weingarten does admit that some people will benefit. It's kind of like saying, are, are, are there pros to stealing? Well, I guess, yes, the person who stole the product, they're gonna, there's the, they, they now have it. There's no doubt that patients are struggling with, um, with, with high drug costs. I mean, to, you, we, we can't ignore that. The question is, what's the solution? Um, and you know, stealing people's property is never the solution. Around 30% of Americans report it's difficult for them to afford the drugs they need. Weingarten blames the complicated American health care system, which he says needs to gradually change. He also admits that some drug makers have abused the patent system, but he doesn't think seizing patents is the answer. Emma Shi, NTD News. Police charged a U.S. senator's son with manslaughter this week after a chase ending in a deputy's death. North Dakota Senator Kevin Kramer's son, Ian Kramer, was charged Wednesday after crashing into an empty patrol vehicle that struck and killed the deputy outside his car. This comes the same day as a Bismarck police response to a stolen car report. Highway Patrol says officers began chasing Kramer after he tried to escape. Senator Kramer said in a statement that his son suffers from serious mental disorders which manifest in severe paranoia and hallucinations. The son has been charged with manslaughter and a number of other charges. And now switching gears, here are some of the latest headlines. Over a thousand DHL Express workers at the company's main U.S. air hub went on strike yesterday. The workers are protesting unfair labor practices and stalled contract talks. The strike threatens to delay packages during the critical peak holiday shipping season. Mercon Coffee Group, one of the world's largest coffee traders, has filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. Documentation seen by Reuters cites several issues. Those include logistical disruption during the pandemic, volatile weather conditions, price volatility, and rising interest rates. A Mercon source said the company will sell remaining stocks under bankruptcy protection. And just ahead, Christmas on a boat, we explore the unique way of celebrating come Yuletide with a parade of dazzling displays. A leader in the marine technology industry tells us what these offer that you just can't get on land. And we'll be cruising some of Europe's beautiful Christmas markets and festive celebrations, attracting visitors from around the world in just a minute.
Good to have you back. And Christmas is coming soon, as we all know. That's right. You know what that means? Christmas boat parades. They've arrived this season, and we unpack the allure of these stupendous nautical celebrations with Alex Monjo, the CEO of Vision Marine Technologies. The fact that we have a bunch of colors, uh, boats, and the uh, magic of Christmas is very popular in California and Florida during wintertime. Um, the lights, people are driving boats at night, seeing houses very well decorated with lights. Uh, it's like a magic show. It's beautiful. So we've been actually very active since 2017. Um, in California, it's five days nonstop. Uh, every night, uh, boats are out and there's a nice parade with music. It's very beautiful. Uh, it's something very cool to do with family. Uh, even if it's a little bit cold at night, uh, we have enclosures on our boats and people love that. It's beautiful. That's great. And Southern California and Florida are pretty warm areas. Do you think that these Christmas boat parades are a way for them to make up for the fact that they don't have snow and try to get into the spirit? Exactly. Uh, there's even places that they throw some fake snow on front of houses where their houses are very well decorated. And the beauty of our boats is actually it's very quiet, so um, people are having a good time and uh, there's no fume and smoke. These are electric boats. They're very popular in California and they're getting more and more popular in uh, the Florida state. Yes, absolutely. And what do people get, have to get some kind of like permit or something to put these together? On our small electric boats for the rentals operation, we don't need that. Uh, we're running our boats with less than one horsepower. So these are like more golf cart and they sit 10 passengers. All our vessel are US Coast Guard certified. Um, the captain can't use uh, the alcohol, but the rest of the group can have some uh, alcohol and drinks if they want to. Uh, but during the, the Christmas parade, people are more having coffees and hot chocolate on the boats. And it's um, they dress the boat with uh, lights and uh, cookies and it's very beautiful how people dress their boat during those uh, boat parades. Yes, enjoying some refreshments as they cruise along there. What is it about these boat parades that you just can't get from a land-based display? The uh, scenery from a boat uh, with houses uh, on a waterfront, it's, it's, a, it's a impressive. People are decorating the, their backyard and when you're running, you're driving a boat on the on the water. You see different types of houses that the back of the house couldn't be seen. Like people are investing a lot of time and money by putting amazing lights on palm trees, and it, it looks like a, in a movie. It's beautiful, and it's it's a family activity that uh, the nautical experience. It's at the top of the level uh, on the uh, on the, I would say on the on a full year. Best night out is Christmas boat parade, and sometime Fourth of July as well. People are decorating their houses a bit like, but never like Christmas. Christmas is very spectacular. Just a great way to celebrate. Alex Monjon, founder and CEO of Vision Marine Technologies. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. And you know what else it is time for? What? Christmas markets, of course. Oh yeah, Christmas markets across the world are enchanting visitors with their dazzling lights and charming atmosphere. So let's take a gander at people enjoying the festive spirit. Here's Entity's Cost MS to show us around. The festive spirit is in full swing as annual Christmas markets across Europe open their doors to locals and tourists alike. In Croatia, Advent Zagreb has frequently been voted the best in Europe and has become a must-visit destination during the festive season. Oh, I love it. It's so beautiful. It's, uh, it's an experience like I've never had before. I love all the different kinds of food and the decorations are incredible. It was so exciting the other night when they lit everything up. The market is adorned with twinkling lights and colorful decorations and the scent of mulled wine and roasted chestnuts fill the air. It's beautiful. Um, I was just walking around and seeing all of the different stalls and food and um, drinks. It's really wonderful. So I think it's kind of got a, a modern flair to Christmas markets. Um, I can see why it's won so many awards. In Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Sarajevo Festival of Lights has illuminated for the first time the botanical garden of the National Museum in the capital. The museum boasts one of the world's largest collections of butterflies. The theme is reflected in the garden's light displays, with each drawing inspiration from the National Museum's holdings. 
What makes the first Festival of Lights noteworthy? The fact that it takes place in Sarajevo for the first time. It's taking place for the first time in the Earth Museum and its Botanical Garden, the most significant cultural and historical institution in Bosnia. And it's important because Sarajevo has become a part of the world. In the German capital Berlin, high streets are lit up for the holiday season, as Christmas shopping is kicking off in Berlin's Kurfürstendamm shopping mile. Trees covered around 90 miles of LED lights, which are attracting visitors every day. But larger light sculptures, like the famous snowman and the nutcracker, had to be cancelled this year due to lack of funding. Festivities also kicked off in the Danish capital, Copenhagen. A total of nearly 30 miles of Christmas light chains have been used to bring festive cheer to the 180-year-old Tivoli amusement park in the city centre. And in Prague, people gathered in the city's old town square on Saturday to see the Christmas tree being lit. Bountiful decorations adorned the 65-foot spruce, which was brought from the mountains in the country's north. Kost Hemenes, NTD News. Ah, I miss Christmas markets. Oh yes, I bet they have plenty of them in Germany. Oh, for sure. But also my favorite one, I think, was in Vienna. They had a huge ice skating rink, and one year it was two levels. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? Yeah. Tell us more about it. Oh, it was really nice. I Because when you go on it, there's different routes, and you have arrows on the ground, and it's almost like you're in a Mario Kart game. And the backdrop is wonderful because it's the city hall, and the Vienna, Viennese city hall is absolutely gorgeous. Give it a Google. It looks like a I want to say a Disney castle. Wow, a little tour of Europe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, nice. All right, uh, we're heading to a quick break here. We'll be back in one minute, so stay with us. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Hunter Biden now facing nine criminal tax charges in a new indictment. Prosecutors allege it involved a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes and spending money on women and drugs instead. Body cam footage emerges of terrorists setting up in civilian buildings in preparation for attack. And an Israeli man believed to be held hostage in Gaza confirmed dead. A major donor at UPenn pulls his $100 million donation as backlash over Ivy League University policy on anti-Semitism adds up. A mother hopes for a miracle this Hanukkah season. Her son remains a hostage of Hamas. Hear her story. Nine loaded gun magazines, a list of targets and more. Police share new information about the Las Vegas campus shooting suspect. The holiday season is here, which means crowds of people hunting for the perfect gifts. We have some tips from an NYPD sergeant on how to stay safe this season. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome, we have made it to Friday, it's December 8th today, and we're heading off with our top news. Federal prosecutors have filed new criminal charges against President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. It's a second criminal case special counsel David Weiss has brought against the younger Biden in his long-running DOJ investigation. Weiss announced the indictment last night, accusing Hunter Biden of failing to pay over a million dollars in taxes 
while spending millions on items of a personal nature instead. The indictment alleges this took place during a four-year scheme to support what it called a lavish lifestyle. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new accusations. A California grand jury returned a nine-count indictment against Hunter Biden Thursday, charging him with three felony tax offenses and six misdemeanor tax offenses. Special counsel David Weiss alleging the first son spent millions on a lavish lifestyle and drugs instead of fulfilling his tax obligations. Weiss says the charges include three counts of failure to pay taxes for the years 2016, 2017, and 2019, and three counts of failure to file tax returns for the years 2017 and 2018. The special counsel's team accuses Hunter Biden of engaging in a four-year scheme to avoid paying taxes amounting to at least $1.4 million. Prosecutors allege that Hunter Biden included false business deductions when filing for 2018 after eventually paying for that year and claim it was done in order to evade assessment and reduce the substantial tax liabilities he faced. Also in the 56-page indictment are accusations of subverting the payroll and tax withholding process of his own company by withdrawing millions of dollars outside of its normal withholding process. It accuses the president's son of spending his money during that time on drugs, escorts and girlfriends, luxury hotels, exotic cars, and clothing among other items of a personal nature, quote, in short, everything but his taxes. It states he spent over $1.8 million in 2018 alone, listing roughly $770,000 in cash withdrawals that year, along with over $380,000 payments to women, and close to $150,000 on clothing and accessories. The indictment also lists spending for 2016, 2017, and 2019. Hunter Biden's attorney Abby Lowell stated Thursday, based on the facts in the law, charges wouldn't have been brought if his client had any other last name. Lowell accuses Weiss of reneging on a prior plea deal under GOP pressure and then piling on nine new charges after a five-year-long investigation. If convicted on all counts, Hunter Biden could face a maximum penalty of 17 years in prison. The Justice Department says its investigation is ongoing. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We reached out to the White House, DOJ, and Hunter Biden's attorney for comment. We'll let you hear back hear when uh, when we hear back. So for now, we're heading to some updates from the Israel-Hamas war. An Israeli man believed to be a hostage in Gaza was killed on October 7th. 68-year-old Doror Kaplan was a resident of Kibbutz Be'eri, one of the hardest-hit communities that day. The kibbutz announced his death yesterday as that his wife Marcel was also killed. And a Hamas body cam video was released by Israel's military yesterday showing what it says are Hamas terrorists fortifying themselves in a civilian building. The video shows a person holding a rocket launcher crawling from a building and people hiding in the building. Another footage released yesterday shows around 100 men detained in northern Gaza guarded by Israeli troops. IDF spokesperson Daniel Higari says many have been arrested during ground operations for questioning around ties to Hamas. The IDF says it has detained and interrogated hundreds of suspected terrorists in Gaza so far during the war and says it will continue dismantling each Hamas stronghold. Egypt's foreign minister said yesterday Palestinians will not be allowed to temporarily relocate to Egypt. The minister stated displacement would violate international humanitarian law. And moving on to the Hanukkah season, which is here, the traditional Jewish holiday that is celebrated worldwide. The world's largest menorah was lit in New York City yesterday. However, this year's celebration brings with it new challenges and new hopes. The Hanukkah holiday started last night. The eight nights of celebration, prayer and merriment make it one of the most popular Jewish holidays. In New York, the first night of the holiday started with lighting a candle on the world's largest menorah. This visitor is hoping the Hanukkah season will bring out the best in people across the world. This year it means a little bit more. I mean, everyone needs to stand together with everything going on. And, um, you know, just feel like the more people that come out, the more people that band together, we hopefully other people will see what's really going on. And that, you know, the Jewish community is not the evil community that they want to brand it as. And that, you know, it's all about peace and love. In Israel, the hostage situation is casting a long shadow on the Festival of Lights. People in this Tel Aviv celebration are sad, but remain hopeful the hostages will come home safely. 
Today it's a, it's a Hanukkah holiday here in Israel. And we are really pray very, very hard that this holiday will bring, our, will bring us the miracle that we are so waiting for, to bring him home to his family, that we can hug him and kiss him, and just to know that he is okay. Edith O'Hell and her family are keeping the holiday celebration, cooking the traditional foods, using the old recipes, but the holiday is somber for her. Her 22-year-old son, Ulan, has been held hostage since being taken at the Supernova Festival on October 7th. She's struggling to cope. But the fact is, is that it's very quiet at home. It's not as festive and it's not as happy as it should be. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard. But uh, he's in our hearts all the time. Even when I'm talking to you now, I'm thinking that he's here in somehow, in some way. She takes comfort in thinking about the meaning of the Hanukkah celebration, and she believes the magic of the holiday will see the safe release of her son. There's, um, in Hanukkah, there were eight lights, or uh, eight days of Hanukkah. And he was, was his SMS was at eight o'clock, at 8, 8.08, if I show you this, is really meaning. So I think it will be a miracle. I don't know why. I think so. Maybe at the eighth day of Hanukkah, maybe. This year, the Hanukkah celebration worldwide has taken on a deeper meaning than other years. For Jewish people across the world, there is more concern and more sadness, but there is also more hope, unity, and a stronger belief that miracles will happen. And at the same time, Ivy League University presidents facing backlash over rising campus anti-Semitism are now facing some repercussions. A prominent rabbi and anti-Semitism advisor at Harvard, David Wolpe, resigned yesterday, citing painfully inadequate testimony from Harvard President Claudine Gay. He also says the system at Harvard and its ideology grip far too many students and faculty. Wolpe says the ideology works only along axes of oppression. He argues that portraying Jews as oppressors and inherently evil is wrong and makes the entire ideology evil. Major UPenn donor Ross Stevens says he's withdrawing a $100 million donation. His attorneys say it's because UPenn violated the firm's limited partnership agreement. Stevens' lawyers say the university failed to meet its anti-discrimination and harassment rules. He mentioned UPenn President Liz McGill's recent testimony when she said calls for genocide violate policy based on the context and whether they were directed, pervasive and severe. The board of UPenn's Wharton Business School is now calling for McGill's resignation. And new details in the Las Vegas campus gunman case. Police say he was a financially struggling academic who was refused employment by several Nevada colleges. The suspect was shot dead by police after allegedly killing three professors and wounding a fourth. Police discussed the suspect here who was found with nine loaded magazines. Officers from both UNLV and LVMPD arrived and heard shooting coming from inside the beam hall and went in immediately, and I stress without hesitation, to neutralize the threat. The suspect exited the building at around 11.55 and was confronted by UNLV, plainclothes police officers, and a gunfight ensued. The suspect was struck multiple times and collapsed to the ground. Police say 67-year-old Anthony Polito had a criminal record for a computer crime. UNLV students were not the main target of the attack, according to law enforcement, but the exact motive is unclear. Investigators say the suspect mailed over 20 letters to university employees across the country before the shooting and had a list of people he was seeking on the UNLV campus and at East Carolina University where he once taught. Authorities managed to intercept the letters before they were delivered and their contents are still being looked at. Police say they also found a document similar to a will at the suspect's residence, but haven't released its contents.
And just ahead with the holiday shopping season upon us, crowds of people are out hunting for the perfect gift. We have some tips from an NYPD sergeant on how to stay safe this season, so stay with us. Welcome back. We have NYPD Sergeant Kevin Kelly here with us this morning from Crime Prevention. It's the holiday shopping season, so crowds of people are out and about hunting for gifts. Yeah, and that also means more opportunity for bad actors for crime. And good morning, first of all, Sergeant Kelly. It's really good to, uh, to have you here early this morning. And there is a crime rate increase reportedly during the holidays. So please talk to us about first, what are some of the most common crimes that you observe during these the Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so what we see during the season, we may see an uptick in certain crimes because of the large crowds that are coming to the city to enjoy our city. It's beautiful and we, we love to have everybody here um, during the winter time. But we want you to, you know, make sure that you're protecting yourself, safeguarding your property. So when you're out and about, make sure that your your phones, your valuables, your cash, your credit cards are safeguarded. We tell you to keep things up front, pants pocket, front jacket pocket. Um, if you have a bag, keep it zippered, keep it up front, close to your body. Yeah, people have to be very vigilant. And of course, New York's finest has their work cut out for them, scanning the crowds and everything. But what are the potential dangers that people should be prepared for when they go out to shop? I, there's really, I, I don't see any dangers. Again, um, our city is beautiful, especially in the wintertime. And we encourage everybody to go out there, shop, have a good time, live your life. But um, just like you would go out in the cold and you would put layers on, we want you to layer your security, your personal safety. So what I mean is just make sure you're mindful, make sure you uh, have situational awareness, know where your valuables are. If you get bumped in the crowd on a subway or a bus or out you know, at Rockefeller Center at the tree, be mindful. Maybe that's an indicator of a pickpocket. So just you know, do a quick check, inventory, make sure you have everything. Right, so getting bumped was one thing that you're, you're mentioning. So what are some other methods that maybe, you know, for petty theft, that um, when you maybe observe something, maybe even beforehand, that, that can like ring a bell uh, ring a, or ring alarm bell? We always like say, if, if you got that feeling in your gut, trust it. If something doesn't feel right, go the other way, right? Uh, put your stuff down, be more aware. Um, if you're out and you're, you know, taking pictures, uh, don't just put your bag down and leave it there because these, these people are, that are committing these crimes are opportunists. They're looking for an easy target and we want you to remove that opportunity so you're not you know, giving them something easy to uh, pick from. Right, yeah, don't give them the chance. And exactly. there's gonna be a lot of people that are doing their shopping online this holiday season, of course. Are any tips for online shoppers not to get ripped off and tricked? Sure, I mean, uh, when you're shopping online, you wanna make sure that you're not clicking on any links or QR codes from emails or text messages especially. Um, open up your own web browser, pop in the email address, I'm sorry, the uh, website address yourself. Um, if you do get uh, emails or links, check them out. Check the letters out in the email or the website address. Make sure that it makes sense because what these scammers do is they'll change one letter in the email address and, and that's how they'll, they'll get you. Mm, that's interesting. So something more specific here, because I see my husband always keeping his wallet, his phone or something in his back pocket. Is that a good idea? I keep all of my stuff up front in my front pants okay. pocket. That way it's, everything's up front. It's, and when, my, when I'm riding the subway, like we were talking, I take the train to work. When I'm on the subway, I have a backpack on, I swing it up front because if it's behind me, it's you know, open game for everybody. Yeah, and I've seen they make those pickpocket proof pants. Yeah. This maybe could come in handy, hopefully Absolutely. I don't need it. Well, sorry, what's that? <laughs> uh, uh, this is like they got the buttons up you know, in the pockets and everything. Oh, right, so it's harder to get to it. Yeah. That makes sense, okay, yeah. Yeah, little tricks you can oh, yeah. employ. Well, any other do's and don'ts maybe that people should know about? Sure, if you're, if you, uh, speaking of online, if you're online buying and selling e-commerce, uh, we just rolled out a program, e-commerce exchange zone. Mm -hmm. It's at every precinct, NYPD precinct, at NYPD housing public service areas, and every NYPD transit district. There's a big metal sign that says, uh, the, our e-commerce exchange zone. So if you're buying and selling, we encourage you to 
go to these locations and do it. It's monitored by a security camera, well lit, and um, you don't have to make an appointment. You can go there and you can feel safe, you know, buying and selling online. Mm. That is really cool. Yeah, yeah, thanks for helping us and our viewers know Absolutely. about that resource. Absolutely. Definitely. I will let my husband know as well. No more putting phones in the back pocket. <laughs> All right. Everything up front. Yeah. Thank you so much, NYPD Sergeant Kevin Kelly. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. And, and for now, we are leaving it here with our show. We'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest information during the day. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.